You know, in uh, the second song in that set, there was the line, the strength to keep your commandments is not in me, or something like that. And today we're going to examine a religious reaction where the people actually believed their strength was in themselves, and all they needed was a leader. They didn't need deliverance from sin, they didn't need their nature to be changed, they didn't need to come from spiritual death to spiritual life. All they needed was somebody to feed them and conquer Rome. Tragic, tragic conclusion they had come to. This morning I want you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 19 and verses 28 through 48. And as we approach Resurrection Sunday next week, I want us to begin looking at the period of time from the Passion Week through the ascension of Jesus Christ after his resurrection to the right hand of the Father. And we'll look at that at the third week. Pastor Craig will be looking at the the resurrection and the crucifixion next week. This is a period of time, I believe, punctuated by a brief celebration, as we're going to look at today highlighted by our Lord's crucifixion and resurrection on the third day, and culminating in our Lord's ascension to the right hand of the Father, which we'll see on week number three, as I said. So this morning, let's begin the Passion Week series by looking at a brief celebration that kicks this off, so to speak. Look at verse 28 in Luke chapter 19, and I'm going to read the whole thing down through verse 48 just so we can get the context, just so we can understand the dynamics that are going on here ahead of time. It says, after he had said these things, and he was teaching his disciples, and this was the parable of the minas and uh, being a faithful servant of God and so on and so forth, and then he says, uh, after these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. You always went up to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem was on Mount Zion, so you always ascended to Jerusalem. That's why I think it's beginning in Psalms 120 and going through, I think, Psalms 130. You have the Psalms of Ascent as Israel returned from their Babylonian captivity. We're going to begin looking at some of the Psalms after we finish this series, and it's going to be exciting. Anyway, he was going up to Jerusalem when he approached Bethpage and Bethany. Uh, two little small villages that were near each other, near the mount which is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent, went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, <clears throat> the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? You know, somebody just comes up and <laughs> takes away your animal, right? And uh, they said, the Lord has need of it, and that settled the question. And they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on it and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road, and From what Steve read in Matthew 21, they were also throwing palm branches and palm fronds and so on on the road ahead of the colt. And and, uh, it says, as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, he would go down into the Kidron Valley up to Jerusalem. The whole crowd of the disciples 
began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which he, they had seen. They were shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. What a day. What a day. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now you have been, they have been hidden from your eyes, for the day will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will leave, not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize, and mark this in your Bible, the time of your visitation. Jesus entered the temple, began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of robbers, extortioners. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him, and they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to Every word he said. That's the whole picture of the first day of the triumphal entry. We can see the celebration, very short-lived, and then we see the aftermath of that, kind of a mixed bag. First day of the Passion Week is a mixed bag. There's a brief celebration among the people as Jesus enters Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna, uh, blessed is the king, uh, and Hosanna means save us now. In other words, take care of business right now and do whatever you're going to do right now. Save us. To the king, to the son of David, Matthew 21, 9 adds, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And as the week commences, they have the full expectation that Jesus has come to reign and, and powerfully deliver Israel from the political oppression of Rome. That was their expectation. That did not materialize, as we saw in our study of Matthew. And by the end of the week, it turns hostile, it turns violent, it turns ugly. But Jesus had come to deliver them and us I might add, from the power of sin and the dominance of the prince of darkness in this world. You know, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. This, this is the blindest day, I think, in the history of the world. And he has come to blind us to the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. First or Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says that... Uh, Jesus Christ came to deliver us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. God uh, did that. Why? To bring about redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. That's why he came. But they're expecting a deliverer. They're expecting a conqueror. And immediately the, the satanic confrontation commences. Because Satan has blinded the minds of both teacher and pupil in this case. Teacher, 
They say, rebuke your disciples, verse 39. But then Jesus rebukes them for their spiritual ignorance of the prophetic significance of that day, and he drives the buyers and the sellers out of the temple. And he calls them a den of robbers. That's very interesting because when people would come to Jerusalem, particularly at the Passover, to pay the temple tax and to sacrifice animals for the Passover, the priests would do an exchange rate because you could only pay the temple tax in a Hebrew uh, coin. So they'd do this exorbitant exchange rate. Let's say if you brought a coin from Assyria to pay the thing, you would get a Jewish thing, but you would pay through the nose to get it. You'd bring your animal to sacrifice, and of course they'd find some blemish in it, and they'd put it at the back of the line, and then they'd resell it to everybody who came through. It was a million, billion-dollar industry in the temple. That's why Jesus says you've made it a den of robbers. Plus, the real problem was they didn't teach the Word of God. And they were robbing the people of their spiritual life, literally. That's what happens in churches. That's what happens in synagogues. That's what happens in false religions. People are robbed of eternal life. And I think we need to understand that. There was a den, horrible den of robbers there. And he begins to teach and pray in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men begin to devise a plan to destroy him or kill him, verse 47 tells us. Immediately, that began, it had been going along all along, but now it really picks up a full head of steam because he is in their temple, in their minds, not God's temple, but their little den of merchandise. He's in their, their you know, he's right up in their grill. So they got to do something. That's why this week just escalates. And by the end of the week, the fickle, misled, celebratory crowd would be crying for his blood. Crucify him, crucify him, his blood be on us and our children. What an awful thing to want. And tragically, at the time of the Passover, Jerusalem swelled up to a population of, oh, around 2 million people plus. And what this is, is a wholesale rejection by Israel, the nation of Israel, of her Messiah as he enters Jerusalem on that day. Now, as we look at this celebration, I want you to see basically two things. Number one, the brief celebration in verses 28 through 40. And then secondly, the blatant reality of the celebration in verses 41 through 48. So, First of all, let's look at the brief celebration that it begins with Jesus exercising his divine omniscience as he fulfills the prophetic word. Look at verses 28 through 34 again. And he just says he was on on his way to Jerusalem. He approached Bethpage. He tells two of his disciples, go into the village, verse 30, ahead of you, there as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat, untie the colt and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt, just as Jesus said. And uh, they said the Lord has need of it. That settled the issue. Obviously, God's in control, and here's the scene. Bethpage, as well as Bethany, were thought to be on the Mount of Olives, though there's not a 
tremendous amount of archaeological evidence to support that, but uh, it was just across the Kidron Valley, and it was just east of Jerusalem, and one could undoubtedly see Jerusalem from these two small villages, and you'll recall Bethany was the home of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead in John chapter 11, and Mary and Martha, and the scripture has much to say about the ministry of Mary and Martha, and uh, they were just a blessed, godly family. And as they approach these two small villages, Jesus exercises his divine omniscience, or all-knowingness. Tells two of his men to go into the village, and they will find a donkey and her colt, Matthew 21, 2 says, and I believe that's because Junior had not been tested to hold anybody or anybody to ride on him, and he followed Mama probably into Jerusalem amid the shouts of the crowd and just to keep him calm. But, and they were to untie and take them, and if anyone questioned what they were to say, the Lord has need of them, they were to retort. And uh, Mark 11, 5 and 6, as well as here, tells us that's exactly what happened. Isn't that amazing? Now, was that dumb luck on Jesus' part? Was that uh, a coincidence that that happened that way and everything, just as he said, uh, was it happenstance or was it the sovereign ruler of all things fulfilling his word? As Jesus foresaw the events, he foresaw the response and he fulfilled the word of God to the letter. Amazing how accurate prophecy is. Matthew 20, 21, 4 and 5 tells us this took place to fulfill what was spoken of through the prophet Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. That prophecy being written hundreds of years prior. Let me read you the whole prophecy. See if you can discern some things here. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's the whole verse. Now, that's the humble entrance of a king who is a savior, not the entrance of a monarch who is a conqueror, a monarch who is a conqueror would have come on a white stallion. This is the Savior coming to deliver and justify men before God and endowed with salvation from sin, which is the true master of men's souls and lives, not the Roman Empire not the Democratic House of Representatives, not President Trump, not the Chinese, whoever you want to put in that slot. What men need to be delivered from, the greatest miracle in the world is that men get delivered from sin and their stone-cold heart comes alive. That's the miracle. We need to get our eyes off of men and off of politics and off of social, political, religious systems and get our eyes onto Christ because he is the only deliverer. And this is probably the ugliest day in the history of the world of the rejection of that message. It 
They should have understood this. That their king was just and endowed with salvation. He came to redeem their sinful souls, not just lead them to worldly deliverance and prominence as most of them thought and hoped for. He came in humility, just as Genesis 3 said he'd be born of the seed of the woman. Psalms 22 describes the crucifixion. Isaiah 53 describes it all. He came just as it was foretold. Born in Bethlehem, Micah 5. Came in on a donkey, not a war charger. Zechariah 9. Messiah was a savior from sin first and foremost who would one day deliberate and rule over his redeemed people as king of kings and lord of lords, but it wasn't to be that day. Prophecy would be fulfilled. They would reject Messiah. He wouldn't be the conqueror of Rome and set up his political system. One day he will conquer the world and he will set up his own government but not now. And tragically, they missed this. They saw something that would happen in the future, and they tried to make it happen in time, and it was tragic. First of all, there was the monumental issue of man's sinfulness and rebellion towards God that must be dealt with first. This is what neither the disciples, his own disciples, nor the crowd understood. And if the disciples didn't get it, the crowd was clueless. Flip back a page to Luke 18.31. Look at the condition of the disciples, okay? We always think the disciples were, you know, getting it and understanding everything Jesus said. And up to this point, before the Holy Spirit was sent, they didn't understand a thing. Verse 31 says, He took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. In other words, this will be a time everything the prophets have said will happen to the glory of God. And then he tells them what's going to happen. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have Scourge him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. Now listen to this. But the disciples understood, how much? None of these things. And the meaning of the statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. That was the condition of his own disciples. You can imagine the condition of the crowd. They're caught up in a mob scene, and they're all excited, and Hey, the king is finally coming. They tried to do this once before in John chapter 6. Remember after he fed the 5,000? They came and Jesus left because they were going to come and take him and by force make him king. It's not how you do things. <laughs> they didn't understand. Now at this point they believe more in the political agenda of Israel that Messiah would throw off the Roman yoke than they did in the Word of God, that Messiah would make sacrifice and liberate and free us from our sin. You can read about it in John chapter 8, Isaiah 53. There's so many places in the Bible that uh, really define this, but 
They wanted a liberator from Rome. They didn't want a liberator from sin because, like most religions, they kind of minimize sin. You know, you can kind of take care of it. You can live a nice life, and everybody's basically a good person. So why bother with sin? And in John chapter 9, the guy who was healed from his blindness, congenital blindness from birth, was confronted by the Pharisees, and he says, well, you know, I, I don't know who he is, but uh, I was blind, but now I see. And that had never happened in the history of the world before or since. And they go, you were born entirely in your sins, and you're teaching us? Do you understand that statement? These people actually honestly believed you could be justified by works. James says to be guilty of, if you have one bad thought in your lifetime, you're guilty of the whole law. James says to be guilty of one point of the law, guilty of it all. If you've ever lusted, if you've ever thought a bad thought, if you've ever been outrageously angry with somebody for the wrong reasons and that kind of thing, you're condemned. You are condemned. How many times does it take, how many times do you have to lie to be a liar? One time. That's all it takes. And that group, in, uh, every time it mentions who's not going to be in heaven in Revelation 21 and two, 22, it says, and all liars, and all who loved and practiced lying. And uh, I think we all qualify there. We need a Savior. And as Pastor Craig so often says, if you're here this morning, we welcome you. And if you are here this morning and don't know Christ, we're happy that you're here. We're happy you're hearing the word. Maybe this is kind of a harsh message for you to uh, really comprehend, but all of us are sinners. We're all in the same sinking. We're all in the Titanic. <laughs> We're all going down in God's eyes. To be guilty of one point of the law is to be guilty of it all. That's why Jesus came to fulfill the law on our behalf. He came to take on the wrath and justice of God for sinners. And, and then because he did that and he conquered the sin and the grave, sin and death, and he rose three days later from the grave, he offers us the free gift of eternal life because he's already paid the price. You don't pay it. You just live a life of joy and gratitude to him from that point on. You know, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's, that's the Christian life. It's lived out of love, not out of fear. It's lived out of trying to please and say, say thank you to the one who has done so much to us, not to earn his favor somehow. If you're a believer right now, God cannot love you any more than he loves you right now. And he's expressed that love. If you're an unbeliever, God loves you and is reaching out to you. All you've got to do is receive the gift of eternal life that's in Christ. And I'll leave it at that the most wonderful gift there is to give on this entire planet. But the disciples didn't understand. They didn't want a liberator from sin. The Jews didn't want a liberator from sin. They wanted a conqueror. They wanted a king riding in a chariot, and they got a savior riding on a lowly colt. They wanted a king to drive out the Roman legions. They got a savior who brought them deliverance from their sins. And because of this, their disappointment was great, and by the end of the week, they'd be crying out for his blood. How tragic. 
false teaching has a terrible, terrible impact on people. It robs them of eternal life. Now, in spite of all this, we see a brief celebration. Look at verses 35 through 40. It says, as Jesus was approached, Excuse me, I'm reading them the wrong. 35, it says, they brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on it and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees, though, in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, don't you hear what they're saying? Don't you hear the falseness of what they're saying? And Jesus retorts, he says, I tell you, if they become silent, the stones will cry out. Amazing statement. The stones will cry out. What a day this was in the history of the world. I think possibly one of the most incredible days the world has ever seen. As Jesus is seated on the colt in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, he begins to ascend or descend, and then he would ascend up to Jerusalem. And there's a great celebration going on. People are throwing their coats on the on the colt and spreading their coats in the road along with branches and palm fronds and they're praising God for all the mighty miracles they had seen Jesus do and there's great joy and rejoicing blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna which means save us now deliver us now peace in heaven and glory in the highest and the atmosphere is literally electric at that point and well it should have been because this was a day like no other. This is one of the most incredible days in the history of the world. And this is hinted at in verses 39 and 40 when the Pharisees confront Jesus about the celebration. And Jesus says, I tell you, if, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Something amazingly significant is taking place on this very day. Now, why would Jesus say that? Well, he would say that because we're going to see the blatant reality of this celebration in verses 41 through 48. And to begin to understand why Jesus would say that, read with me verses 41 through 44. It says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. You know, Jesus one day will be a judge. It says the blood will flow at the battle of Armageddon up to the bridle of the horse going to be an awful, awful, quick and bloody battle as he slays the nations with the sword of his mouth, the armies of the world. But Jesus is an incredibly compassionate, loving, gracious, merciful Savior. But there comes a point of final rejection. He weeps over Jerusalem and he says, if you had known in this day even you, the things which make for peace. If you had just known what peace with God was like, that you 
gain peace with God through the Savior, not through political deliverance. You know, America could come back and be the most conservative nation on the face of the earth. But you know what? That wouldn't save people. You can be the most conservative guy who ever lived and end up going to hell without Christ. And he just said, if you had known what made for peace, you'd understand what's going on today. Your eyes would be open. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The NIV reads, you did not recognize God coming to you. Isn't that interesting? Did not recognize God coming to you. Now you can study it on your own, but what's taking place at the triumphal entry is a partial fulfillment of the amazing prophecy of Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. I encourage you to go home and read that. It's an amazing prophecy. It's about the 70 weeks of years or 490 years designated for God's people Israel. 483 of them are used up on this day. Seven years remain, that's called the time of Jacob's trouble. We call it the tribulation or the great tribulation, a seven-year period when God literally destroys the earth to reclaim it at the Battle of Armageddon. But on this day, 483 years are used up. It's gone. There's seven years left when God will once again deal with Israel, and they will actually be his vehicle of testimony to the world if you read Revelation 7 carefully. And God will use Israel for the first time in their history to be a light to the world and spread the gospel around the world. You have 144,000 Jewish celibate preachers who just blitz the world with the gospel. That's why I believe the church is not here because God does not work through the church and Israel simultaneously. But you can argue that point a lot. <laughs> but anyway, it's an amazing prophecy. The prophecy tells us at the end of 69 weeks or 483 years, Messiah would present himself to Israel and then be cut off and have nothing. As John 1.11 tells us, he had come to his own and and they did not receive him. Israel rejected their Messiah. By the end of this week, the crowds were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, his blood be on us and our children. Tragic conclusion for Israel. But then Daniel tells us the Romans, sometime later, would destroy the city and the sanctuary, says in Daniel 9, just as Jesus says here in Titus Vesperian accomplished that in 70 A.D. when the Roman legions leveled Jerusalem, destroying the temple and slaughtering 1,100,000 Jews. Titus then proceeded to take 90,000 Jews back to Rome as slaves. They built the Arch of Titus, which we actually got to see with the Fairfields. Very interesting uh, thing, massive thing. And then they finished off the Colosseum, and then what was left over, Trajan, took and cleared off Capitoline Hill and built his own residence there, which was a mile in circumference with 30-foot ceiling. 
You know, I'm, I'm, you know, sometimes when you walk around Rome, you look at it and you just go, I wonder how many people died doing that. You know, after a while, it's like, yeah, I bet a lot of them died. And uh, the remainder of those Jews, 90,000 Jews who weren't scattered and got away, were just used up in Rome to do whatever the emperors wanted to do. But it was a total destruction. But notice in, and then they were dispersed among the nations. But notice in Luke 19.42, Jesus says to the Pharisees, if you had known in this day, then at the end of verse 44, he says, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. What an indictment. He uses the word chiride. There's two words in Greek. Well, there's probably more, but there's two words in Greek that express time. One is chronos, or chronological time, which connotes kind of a series of events that take place. And kairos denotes a definite time. He's saying you should have known the definite time of your visitation. You should have known. You say, well, how could they have known? It was prophetic. Well, it's not prophetic at this point. It's being fulfilled. The prophecy is back in Daniel chapter 9, and uh, they should have known the very day Jesus, the Messiah, would present himself to the Jewish nation. Daniel 9, chapter 9, and verses 24 through 27 is that clear. That's why he said the very stones would cry out if his disciples didn't. All of history, all of heaven awaited that very day, and they missed it. Can you imagine? They missed it. They just blew it. Because of their ignorance of Scripture, because of the false teaching they received, because of the, the self-righteous system that had been developed around that, they just missed it. Now, simply put, and you can study it out on your own. I, I would encourage you to get a book called The Coming Prince. It's an old book by Sir Robert Anderson of Scotland Yard who did incredible research into this, and he timed it out to the very day that Messiah would enter Jerusalem. There's since been work done on that, and they still come to basically the same conclusion within a year. Um, but powerful, powerful book if you want to understand prophecy and who Jesus the Messiah really is uh, just incredible book simply put from the decree of Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2 when Artaxerxes was told that the gates were down and the walls were destroyed and uh, from the Babylonian captivity and uh, he was told that he wept and he went before Artaxerxes asked for a company of people asked for financing and so on and so forth and he went to rebuild the, the walls, and that was on the first of Nisan, it's not the car, but it's a month of Jewish reckoning, or March 14th, 445 B.C. on the Julian calendar, which we use, until the triumphal entry on April 6, 32 A.D. You say, how did they establish that? Well, the time of the Passover is pretty consistent. So the time of the Passover, you just take a week from there and you decide, uh, see that on April 6th is when Jesus entered Jerusalem in 32 AD was 173,880 days, which is exactly 483 years on the Jewish calendar with their 30-day months. You add like three days because every year we gain one 
128th of a day. <laughs> I don't want to get too technical here, but you can read about it in the book. But I mean, it's just, you read through there and you're just awed at God's preciseness in his word. It's incredible. The scribes and the Pharisees and the priests and the leading men of the times, if they had known the word of God and had not turned Judaism into a socio-political religious system, could have known the very day Messiah would present himself to Israel. Even Daniel, 600 years earlier, was told, you are to know and discern. This was not hidden information. God does not mumble even when it comes to predictive prophecy. And I think we need to understand that. But the rest is history here. Messiah was cut off and had nothing, just as Daniel said. He was crucified by the Romans, rose three days later. Later on in 70 AD, the Romans would destroy the city, just as Daniel 9 predicts. And the temple in 70 AD in Israel was scattered among the nations for some 2,000 years. The temple is still not rebuilt, rebuilt. So devastating was the destruction of the temple. They had a gold dome, and when they burned the temple, it melted down into the rocks, and the soldiers, in order to get, get the gold, dismantled the temple and took the gold. Total, total destruction. Terrible destruction. You see, this wasn't a uh, discern the times prophecy, like just as in the days of Noah, You'll neither know the day nor the hour, but you can consider the fig tree when it's put forth its buds. Then you know that he's right at the door. This isn't that kind of prophecy. This is a prophecy that predicts the very day Messiah would enter Jerusalem. And if you are a student of the Bible and really believe the Bible, you could have known very simply. That's how clear this prophecy is. That's why the stones would cry out if the people didn't. So significant was that day. One of the most incredible days in the history of the world. But Messiah was cut off, had nothing, just as God's word had prophesied in Daniel. And I firmly believe this prophecy alone is possibly the greatest proof in the Old Testament that the Jesus of history is the Savior of the world. And it could have ignited a celebration that should have continued from that day forever. They could have received their Messiah. They could have listened to him and actually believed what he said, repented of their sins, and the kingdom would have got going. But that's history. I believe it's one of, if not the most, it's one of the most profound prophecies in all the Bible. And we need to understand it. Well, to see, we see the mixed bag of that day continues in verses 45 through 48. It says, Jesus then entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house sh shall be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers, or a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple. That must have been awesome to be part of that. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men 
among the people were trying to destroy him, and they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on every word he said. They were the leaders, and they were a pack of cowards, basically. They had to get the crowd behind them before they could do anything and show any kind of backbone. And they would do that sooner or later. Now, in a sense, the celebration continues. Jesus enters the temple, and he drives out all the religious hucksters, all the profiteers, all who were benefiting from the ritualistic, superstitious, spiritual, scriptural ignorance of the people. And he reestablishes the temple as a house of worship and prayer and instruction from the Word of God. And he taught daily in the temple until they crucified him, verse 47. And the people were hanging on every word he said, verse 48. Sounds like a revival, doesn't it? Sounds awesome. Sounds like, yeah, something's happening here that's really great. But notice there's a very strong undercurrent here. Read verse 47 again. He says, and he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. You see, the problem here is that ultimately the influence of false teachers and leaders is that it is so damning. By the end of the week, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the leading men had won over the crowds and the celebration turned lethal. They had convinced the crowd that this was not the promised Messiah, the promised king, the long-awaited deliverer from Rome, but this was merely Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee, Matthew 20, verse 11, that Steve wrote. Just merely a prophet. And what does Jerusalem do with the prophets? Kills them and stones them. That's what the Word of God says. And so Messiah was cut off, handed over the Romans to die by crucifixion, just as Daniel 9.26 foretold. And the celebration and cries of Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, soon turn to crucify him, crucify him, his blood be upon us and our children. They rejected their savior, they rejected their king. Tragic, one of the most tragic days in the history of the world. The celebration, put it bluntly, was short-lived. But such is the effect of false teaching and blatant ignorance of God's Word. They should have known the very day their Messiah would present Himself, their King, and deliver from sin. This day should have ushered in eternal blessing to Israel. Should have ushered it in. One day it will when He comes to reign. When they look upon him whom they appear, Zechariah 12.10 says, and they mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And uh, Zechariah 13 and 14 goes on to delineate what will happen during that time. And uh, it's a powerful, powerful thing that happens in Israel during the tribulation. But today was the day of salvation. Today was the day Messiah would enter Jerusalem, and they did not recognize the time of their visitation. And Jesus weeps over their lostness. You know, for some of you, this might be that day, that very day. 
Revelation 3.20 declares, Jesus declares, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Speaking of the intimacy of redemption and forgiveness of sin. And this day you can begin an eternal relationship with God if you don't already have it. Just think of that. Today is the day of your visitation. You're hearing the gospel, you're hearing the truth of God's word, you're seeing prophecy fulfilled to the very letter, to the very day. And Jesus is the Messiah. The Jesus of history is the true Messiah, the true King, the true Savior, because he fulfilled prophecy to the very letter. Not only these prophecies, but there's hundreds of others. At his first coming, he fulfilled some 200 prophecies. The probability of that happening is impossible unless you're God and unless you're the one fulfilling the prophecy. The scientific probability is that Jesus could not be other than who he said he is by prophecy alone. That's why we need to know God's word. We need to be reassured as we go through the prophetic things like how he entered Jerusalem what he did, who he was, Psalms 18, beautiful psalm, fulfillment of that, that entry. And, and Daniel 9, 27, or 24 through 27 is just awesome. It's incredible verses. Scripture further declares today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts, for this is the day of salvation. Today could be the day that eternal life begins for you. So why don't you join the forever celebration? This celebration that we looked at today was very short-lived. <laughs> it lasted, didn't even last the day. Didn't even make it probably till lunchtime. But the celebration Christ invites you to goes on forever. You know, Romans 18 says he invites you to be a son or daughter of God. He invites you to be an heir of God, a joint heir with Jesus Christ. What an awesome thing to celebrate. Let's pray.